This episode contains graphic accounts of domestic and sexual violence, violence against women in particular, animal abuse, and language that is not suitable for listeners under 18 years of age. Please use caution when listening. So since starting this podcast, we have had lots of different people reach out to us with their thoughts, opinions, and just impressions about what we've done over the last five episodes. We've actually heard from a couple of people who what I would call on Jim's side, people who believe that the things that we're saying are untrue or not factual. And unfortunately, none of them are willing to go on the record or provide us, or they have yet to provide us with anything that we could look at to verify or even consider as something that would warrant us issuing a correction. But this is my message to everybody listening. If you have information that refutes the things that we're saying, if you can provide us with documentation or personal lived experience that we can corroborate or consider, we'll issue a, a correction if it's warranted. We've always been willing to do that. So you're a little frustrated. I'm a little frustrated that people who claim to have information that would refute any of the information in this podcast right. are not willing to provide us documentation or records or messages. And I think it's worth like going through how much time and effort we have spent trying to gather the truth. We spent thousands of hours ourselves personally going over court records, documentation. We've spent financial funds getting records from courts. We've had two interns working on this from January until May, gathering information and sources and talking to everybody that we could find. Yeah. Yeah, we cast a really wide net. And people continue to come forward and whenever someone comes forward and says they have information we always talk to them my whole day gets eaten up i will walk into the office at you know nine in the morning and i'll get a message and it's like i need to talk to you today about this and then my whole fucking day centers around getting that information to us that's happened to me multiple times during this process where i had no plan i was going to work on some other project you know and suddenly i i've just spent four hours confirming information and discussing it with somebody and, you know, like making sure that we consider that perspective or that data. And part of the reason we're doing that is because there's been so much hearsay, there's been so much rumor, and there's been so much gossip about this that I think from all sides, it's important to have the record straight. And it's difficult in a situation like this. And so we've really taken a lot of time to do that. And I feel like we've done that justice. And if there is information that you or anyone you know has about this case or any of these cases that you feel like adds to the story or contradicts or rebuts any of the information we've provided, it will be helpful for us to have that. And let me be clear, if you have an opinion about us doing X, Y, or Z, it's not the same as having some evidence to contradict. So that's fine. You can send us that opinion. That doesn't mean it's going to make it on the pod. Now on to your regularly scheduled episode. I don't remember the ambulance ride. 
to the first hospital, but I remember, I think they took me and did a CT. And then that's when they decided to transfer me to the trauma hospital. And I remember that drive because every bump we hit, I hurt. I didn't realize at the time that I had four um, buckle fractured ribs and one that was broke all the way through on the other side. So every bump we hit, it was like excruciating pain. Plus I had two compression fractures in my spine from when he, I, I'm assuming from when he tackled me. And I had a broken nose. Most true crime stories are about one of two things, solving a mystery or learning about how you can avoid being killed. Women around the world have become consumed with true crime to the point that some of our listeners have admitted to listening to true crime podcasts as they fall asleep because it soothes them. Usually you're watching and listening to stories about killers who have either been killed or been put in prison, so they're no longer an active threat. Killers like Jeffrey Dahmer and Jack the Ripper, we pick apart their methods and study the psychology and run scenarios in our minds of how we would get away or how we would solve the crime. In truth, these kinds of sensational crimes represent less than 1% of murder crimes committed in the U.S. Far more common are women killed by domestic partners. And even more common than that are women hurt and assaulted in domestic assaults. Oklahoma is ranked number two in the nation for the number of women killed by men. 20 people per minute in the United States are physically assaulted by an intimate partner. Perhaps the reason we don't tell these stories and the reason they don't make the True Crime 100 list is because these incidents are so common. They hit pretty close to home, especially here in Oklahoma. It's interesting that psychologically we would rather focus on the 1% of sensationalized murder cases than on the 99% of intimate partner violence cases that gum up every criminal docket in America. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. And you're listening to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire. This is episode six, Plenty of Fish Hooks in the Sea. If you're just joining us, we recommend you go back and start listening to the story by starting with episode one. Leslie, this episode is gonna be tough. In a way, I think we've been trying to protect our listeners from the particularly intimate and horrific details of Jim's abuses. But here we are, it's episode six, and we have to dive into the details of these incidents. Yeah, it is disturbing. And so what we've decided to do is to allow these survivors to tell their stories uninterrupted by us as best we can. In this episode, we're going to hear straight from four different survivors' mouths about what they experienced with Jim. On one hand, it is tough to hear it all in one episode. On the other hand, if we string each story out across the season, we're worried our listeners will become desensitized to the violence. Another benefit of doing it this way is if you're sensitive to this kind of content and you want to skip the worst of it but still hear the rest of the story, you can skip this episode. So go ahead. We'll pause right now if you want to turn us off and go do something fun instead. So let's rip the Band-Aid off and get started. First, we're going to hear from Kristen. 
Kristen is one of the survivors that you've heard a little bit throughout this podcast so far, episodes two, four, and five. She was dating and talking to Jim around the time that he was also dating and eventually married Amber, and he was dating one of our other survivors, Kara. Kristen grew up in Cleveland and has known Jim since they were little kids. Kristen and Jim started hanging out when they were both going through difficult periods in their lives as adults. Kristen liked Jim. She wanted to be close to him. But Jim always seemed to be keeping Kristen on the side. Kristen grew up in Cleveland and has known Jim since they were little kids. And Kristen is well-respected in that town even today. She's a realtor. When we visited the Cleveland Lounge, some of the characters there spoke extremely fondly of her. I think if you ask anyone about Kristen, they'll tell you that she's a good woman. Reliable, steady. At least that's how she seems to me. She seems like she's got a good head on her shoulders. You know, she runs a business. She's responsible. She shows up when she says she's going to show up. She's not like you would assume how a lot of victims of these situations are. Like, I think a lot of people think these kinds of victims are like drug addicts or extremely impoverished or they're just kind of desperate. I don't get that kind of a vibe from Kristen. No, no. I think that those stereotypes, I mean, those stereotypes obviously are not the reality and we know that, but I definitely like Kristen certainly doesn't fit the stereotype. As you heard in episodes four and five, Jim would take Kristen on road trips. They would hang out together, sometimes all night. Here's Kristen's account of the last time she saw Jim outside of a courtroom. So I had been like on a little holiday with my uh, sister and my mother. We rode that Heartland Flyer, I think it's what it's called, uh, train from the city to Fort Worth. We did a day trip and uh, we'd actually stayed the night the night before we boarded and then drove back, whatever. And he saw my Facebook posts and sent me a message about, you know, where I was at or whatever. And um, then I think there was an ask for me to come by. And I was coming through Cleveland on my way home anyway. So I thought I'll stop in. And when I got there, his um, brother-in-law, Gene, was uh, parked in the driveway at Patsy's. And, um, and he gets out, uh, they've been drinking beer all day or whatever. And he uh, gets out of his truck and gets into my car and I can just kind of tell like he's had too much to drink. So not going to be any fun. And, um, he gets in my car and we're sitting next to each other. And before he had done like a buddy punch, like is what he would call it, where he'd punch in the arm just to kind of get you started, you know, to see if you want to fight back or gripe about it or whatever, I guess. And I was like, don't do that. And he did it again. I was like, don't do that. And so I took a drink of my cup and he flips the cup and the drink spills down me. And I got out of the car and walked back to the trunk to get, um, I think it was a blanket or something to dry off with. And then I walked to the passenger side where he was sitting. I opened the door, scared as hell, and asked him, you know, I said, you know, maybe I can come back and see you another time. And what, are you trying to kick me out of your car? And I said, no, no. And he like very casually like goes for a mint in my 
console first and then punches me in the nose twice. Yeah, had me like the, by the hair of the head back here. Like he had, took him in, stepped out of the car. I had the car door open now. There I was being nice, like maybe I can come another time, right? Yeah, and he just pops him in and then starts kicking my ass. So punched in the face twice. And then um, I think it was immediately he takes my head, like uh, he still has me by the hair and he's pulling my, uh, pulling my head down like this way. So it's like, almost like my chin is like so far into my chest. Like I can't, like I can't move, you know? And so he goes from that position on down to the ground and um, I'm right by the back wheels of my car and it's in the gravel and he's smashing my whole, like he saws the back of my head and he's smashing my whole face into the gravel and I can hear like things breaking in my face or whatever and I can't speak because he still has me in that like lock and it's like my mouth is closed still, you know, too and I'm smushed down there and he's kicking me in the ribs. So he pulls me back up, and then I can speak again, I think, and I'm screaming, and we struggle, and he kind of stumbles down the ditch, and that's when I get free of him a little bit. I think that's when I went across the street, and then I changed my mind about waking those folks up, and I came back, and um, when he gets a hold of me the second time, he's, um, we're somehow near, like, he's in the driver's uh, seat of my car and he's holding my head again by my hair pushing it against the steering wheel of my car and the horn is honking and his mother's in the house and I'm thinking she's going to hear this and see this and come out not no and she's even up at that time getting ready for work or whatever so um this is whenever he does the fish hooking which is what I call it where he pulls, puts his fingers in my mouth and then pulls the skin away from the gum line and rips it. And uh, so he does that. And then I think while he's doing that, he's he bit me in the shoulder, on the arm. And um, he dropped his phone, I think right about that time. Or he noticed that his phone was in the passenger side floor. So he must have dropped it previously. And that like catches his you know, distracts him. He's got to get that phone. So he lets me go and gets out of the driver's side, walks around the front of the car. And I was like, I'm out of here. And I hopped in and it, I think it was already running and I put it in reverse. And he was like, I think he grabbed his phone in enough time. And I backed out. It's like all at the same time. I almost ran over him and, uh, then he threw a full beer that like he, he was stumbling from like where I almost ran over him. And as he's falling down, he grabs the full beer and pitches it and throws it. And I'm back, I'm like going like this, driving out from the driveway and the beer hits the back of my trunk. Like that's how crazy he's being. So I drove, um, I was in shock. Uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go to the police station at the time, the police station, like they had just moved it from one location to the next. And when I drove by and saw that it wasn't at the place, I was like, oh, yeah, it's at that other place. And I was like, well, maybe I should just go calm down in the park. 
So I went to the park and um, was sitting there and then the police drive by. <laughs> and like, the this is the same street, but I mean, just three blocks up um, where I could have used the police just moments earlier. So, but anyway, they come and they're like, you know, they see me with the blood and um, they take my picture. I didn't even know. They didn't say, hey, we're going to take a picture. You know, they just took my picture. Um, and I still haven't seen that, but not that I want to. But um, it didn't get brought to um, our hearing for some reason. Um, yeah. But um, so then they asked me, you know, who did this to you? And the officer, um, I felt comfortable with him because he knew Jim and he knew me. We all been to school together. So um, I just told him, you know, it took, it took me a little bit to want to say, you know, who it was, but uh, I told him when they asked me if I wanted an ambulance and suggested I get one and I, I refused. And then it was the next day that I went to um, emergency, the emergency room in Tulsa. What do you think about that? The most like horrifying part of that to me, I just was sitting here as she was describing him, like smashing her chin into her chest. I just put a little bit of pressure on the back of my head and it was like really painful. So I really, that just is horrifying. The weirdest thing about this assault to me is how just blatant it is like outside in front of the neighbors, not even thinking about it. And also how casual of the relationship it is with him and Kristen. Like, it's just like a thing where we're high school buddies and we go driving around and you show me frog rock. We do it sometimes. It's not like this heavy, heat of passion like i'm beating you because i found i'm deeply in love with you like that's not what this is it's just so like it's such casual just violence for the sake of violence right and to be clear like not that like i'm beating you because i love you is a better excuse but like like there is something so insidious about him doing this to someone he is casually dating i mean there's a whole like a whole jurisprudence about heat of passion murders and heat of passion second degree behavior and the thought is when you're so emotionally invested with a person you lose it you see red and you get violent and sometimes things happen and whatever so maybe if you if you didn't premeditate it and it was just the heat of passion quote unquote you don't have to go to prison for as long right so fine. Okay. But then that, that this is just like pathological then. I just like, and the, the, like this smashing of her face and the gravel Ugh, and the hearing things the things popping. in her face breaking. I mean, just like, my God, Kristen is a true fucking survivor. You know, I mean, after that, she was like, enough is enough. I'm out of here. So Kristen actually went and got a protective order against Jim after that assault. Here's what she wrote. When Jimmy gets angry, he breaks things and is physically violent to women. He himself has admitted this. He knows he has a problem. Last June, we went to Missouri on a weekend trip. He woke to find me looking through his cell phone, got angry, and spit in my face. Threatened to kill me, pushed me against the wall, ordered me to stay, pulled my hair. We were in a hotel room. It was around midnight. He made me pack up and take him back to Tulsa and wouldn't let me use my phone. 
And he pulled his gun out of the holster and laid it on his bag in the back seat. I drove him straight home. He threatened me and my children and left. Last January, I met Jimmy and we went for a late night drive. He was depressed about a custody case he was going through. He held a pistol to my head, at my temple, then under my chin. And when I started gasping and trying to catch my breath, he said, that's what I feel like inside, 24-7. I want you to know what it feels like. He eventually lowered the gun and we drove to his mom's house. He picked a fight with his mom when we arrived, broke mirrors, threw his phone in a vacuum. I left. On March 21st, 2015, Jimmy sent me a message asking that I stop by on my way home from my sister's house in Fairfax. I got there. He got in the passenger seat. He hit me in the arm and I told him to stop. He said it didn't hurt and slapped my face. I told him I didn't want to play like that. Then he smacked a cup in my face as I was taking a drink and it spilled down me. I got out of the car and came to the trunk to get a blanket to use to dry off. I shut the trunk and went to the passenger side, opened the door, and I told Jimmy I would come and see him another day when he felt better. I told him I was going home. He got mad and asked if I was kicking him out of my car. He grabbed the back of my head by my hair, spit in my face, and punched me in the face, still holding my hair. He took me over to the gravel rocks, pushed my chin to my chest, locking my head there by continuing to hold my hair as he pushed me down, face first, into the gravel. I bit my tongue and had locked jaws, but could not speak. I was pulled into an upright position, and still holding my hair, he grabs my arm, pulls me near the driveway, and I broke loose. I ran to the neighbor's house and almost knocked. I asked Jimmy if I could please just have my car and I would just leave. He told me to come closer, and if I didn't, it didn't matter because he could catch me in three steps. I came closer. He pulled me down on his lap in the passenger seat while holding my head down with one arm. He was using his other arm to fishhook my mouth, separating my cheek from my gum line. I said, ouch, you're hurting me. He said, that will teach you not to scream. He said, are you going to scream again? He let go of me and I made it to the street. He got out of the driver's seat and walked around the passenger seat to find his phone. I got closer to the car. As he was shutting the passenger door, I locked myself in and quickly left. He threw full cans of beer at my car and later sent me a text. Quote, funny how Amber had a note on the door when you left. Just fucking jovial. Amber is his ex-wife who filed a protective order against him in 2014. I went to the police station but wasn't sure I was at the right place and used that as an excuse to go think about everything that had just happened to me. While I was at the park, Officer Russ of Cleveland PD drove up and saw my face. He started asking questions. Russ asked me a few times if I would let him call an ambulance. I denied. I went to the hospital for treatment the next day. Jimmy is in jail and should be treated by a psychiatrist and completely rehabilitated before release. He has a history of violence against women. I am afraid he will kill me for writing this. Kristen mentions Officer Rusty Schaus. 
or Officer Russ. He's the Cleveland PD officer who came upon her while she was sitting in the park, bloody and in shock after being beaten by Jim. Rusty spoke to us about what he saw that night and what that experience was like for him, because he actually knew both Jim and Kristen from high school as well. Cleveland is that kind of a town. I was on patrol at night. I saw a vehicle parked uh, at the park, and it was, I, I don't remember what time of night it was, but I know it was after dark, saw a vehicle parked, so I checked the vehicle, and when I come up on the vehicle, I recognized, I recognized Kristen, uh, and I knew who she was. I, I knew her older brother, uh, and I could tell that she had that she had been in some sort of an altercation and she was crying and I started asking her what was going on. Is she okay? Does she need an ambulance? And she started explaining to me what was going on. And as soon as she said, yeah, it was Jimmy. I didn't, I didn't have any clue. Cause I, I, I didn't, hadn't talked to Christine, Christine in a long time. I didn't know who she was dating, but apparently, you know, she'd been dating Jimmy and the crime occurred right there in front of his house, which was still inside city limits. I had a deputy go with me, uh, to make the arrest on Jimmy. Uh, the deputy that went with me is now the Pawnee County Sheriff. So. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, Sheriff Darren Varnell. Mm-hmm. He's the Pawnee County, he's the Pawnee County Sheriff here. Uh, he is the one that went with me to the house. Just, you know, we're going to pick up somebody who's been violent. I did not want to go alone, uh, just for procedural matters. But we went and arrested him and took him to Pawnee County. And I didn't deal with him again after booking him in. Everything was, I did my paperwork. Uh, and I don't believe we ever had a court date on anything. One of Jim's survivors we're going to be hearing a lot more from is Kara. Kara dated Jim for three weeks in October of 2014. Before she met Jim, Kara was a piano teacher at a local music school. She has a child, and at the time, she was caring for her mother, who had late-stage Alzheimer's. Prior to meeting Jim, Kara had never, ever filed a police report before. And Leslie, I actually know Kara because, and that's how this story came to us, because she taught me piano lessons oh, in yeah. 2014. That's right. Do you yeah. want to tell the story of those piano lessons? Uh, no, it's <laughs> embarrassing. It's really cute. Is it? I was learning... One song on the piano. I don't play the piano, but I was learning one song on the piano to play for my husband on our 10th anniversary. And she helped me set up this whole thing. There's a grand piano inside the music school where she teaches. And it's like inside of a little concert room. And she got us champagne and like chocolate covered strawberries and like filmed it from behind the door with like the door halfway cracked open. This feels like right up her alley. It was, (laughs) she loved it too. Like she loved the theatrics of it and she loved like helping us. Yeah, dude. And everything I know about Kara is just that she's fierce, fierce and just very pure hearted. Yeah. Like her motives are always just for like very the, the greater good. Yes. It's it's always very like it's for justice or it's for romance or it's it's like it's just very easy to boil down why she's doing what she's doing. And so this is Kara's account of what happened to her when she was dating Jim. Yes, and it was also my birthday. It was also my birthday weekend and it was the worst birthday of my entire life to this day 
Um, and I'm really grateful that he didn't ruin my birthdays. I'm glad that I still look forward to my birthdays and I have amazing birthdays. Um, but it sure isn't because he didn't try. Um, when I got to his house, you know, first of all, we had a little bit of argument about the underwear that was in his laundry basket as I walked in the door. So then he, the, the deal was he was going to take me to Freddy's, which Freddy's is actually a Lebanese steakhouse in Sepulpa, and it's actually a, a nice steakhouse. I know it sounds crappy. We're going to Freddy's, but um, no, he, we were going to Freddy's and um, for my birthday, um, we did go to Freddy's where we got back, and then he was really stressed about his custody case with Misty, and so he wanted to go for a drive around Boston Pool Road. And, um, so we spent the rest of the night, um, driving around Boston Pool Road. Um, he was drinking heavily. I was not, um, we ended up and I, there are a lot, I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember being in his bed and he, me and him, we got an argument about something and I went and I got in his daughter's bed and, and I took, because I, I, I wanted to, to be away from him. And that's when I fell asleep and I woke up to him trying to, well, first he was putting, pushing the back of my head into the pillow. And then he was trying to put his dick in my butt and he couldn't because he couldn't keep it hard. So he started using this bottle, this beer bottle that he had from his bedroom. And that's when he tore my butt. And I started like crying. And he, I don't remember how long it lasted. Like it wasn't even that long because I got on his nerves so bad. Like every, like I, he never did hurt me for that long. Because I just, for some reason, I don't remember if it was what I, the things I was saying to him or whatever, I was able to make him stop. And I, I, I got up and I, I remember I got, I drove to my house and I stood in the shower and I took that shower. You know, I took the shower that you always see people having on, on TV the ones that you can't get clean enough, the ones that you stand in until the hot water is gone. And I remember standing in my shower and crying because that motherfucker raped me on my birthday. And I, I'll, and I'll never, and I was like, I'm never going back. I mean, I obviously, I was done with him. I was completely done with him. And I'm not, I'm not going to be the kind of girl that goes back. Um, unfortunately, I can now empathize with, why women do go back to their abusers. So on the third, the third weekend, we, we drove around Boston Pool Road and he ended up, stop, we stopped, he put a gun in, to my head. Um, he put a gun to my head. He took a seat, my seatbelt and put it around my neck. He put my head into my windshield and cracked my windshield with my head. Um, and then I 
was done. Like I knew, I knew then I was done. Like there was no apologizing. There was no coming back from this. There was, I was not going to be that girl. I I knew, I knew that me and Jim Lumen were, were completed at that point. Um, but, uh, he was still in my car and we were on Boston pool road. So I, I just got really kind of cool for all of a sudden. And I was like, all right, we're, we're leaving. And I started leaving and he tried to put my car in the ditch several times. Um, I, I managed to drive to the main highway. Um, he continued to try to, he kept grabbing my wheel, kept trying to make us wreck. Um, I, I got to New Sepulpa Road. Um, he, on the way there, he, he had told me he was going to put me in a field because my, my, my sister could track my phone. Like we had to find my friends or whatever. And he knew that. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in a field without your phone. And your sister's not going to be able to know where you are all weekend. Cause I think it was like a Friday night and it was like a long three day weekend too. And I, and I remember saying, well, you're not going to do shit cause I'm the one driving. And he punched me um, as hard as he could as I was driving 55 miles an hour going down the road. And then he proceeded to tell me how uncool I was. And I, my smart ass said, well, I guess I'm pretty damn cool because you just punched me in the face and I kept my, my car between two lines. And, and then he started to grab my he started to fish hook me. He started to stick his thumb in my mouth and pulled my cheek until my lip was bleeding. And I knew it was bleeding because I could taste it and I could feel it coming down my mouth. I took him to his house where he got out of my car. He grabbed my keys, acted like he was going to throw my keys. And I said, so you're telling me you want me to go home, but you don't want me to know where my keys are. And I guess his ration, I guess I, I questioned his rationing and he threw, he barely tossed my keys. <laughs> and so I went and grabbed them and got in my car and left. Um, I was trying to get my glasses before I left, which is stupid, but um, I didn't get my glasses. And that was the last time I ever saw his face. I mean, other than in a courtroom. I think for... Kara's experience, what we're seeing, and you'll see this some more, is a pretty quick escalation to extreme violence after just meeting the person. You know, like he starts talking to her on Facebook, they start messaging, they go on this first trip to Branson, which we heard about in episodes four and five, that were, it was kind of like hallmarked with some really serious red flags. But nothing super violent happens on the trip to Branson. And then the second time they see each other, it's like anal rape. God. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm just like, I'm left like speechless a little bit. Like, what the fuck? I know. I just don't understand. I just don't understand the pathology. So Jim moves to Iowa to be with his kids. While there, he meets our next survivor, Heather, on a dating site. Plenty of fish. She was recently divorced from her husband of 20 years. She had two daughters at home, and her life was going through a serious upheaval. The thing about Heather, Colleen, though, is that she's this incredibly independent and strong-willed nurse. 
Yeah, she's a medical provider. Yeah. I mean, really smart, really, like, quippy. And so you heard in episodes four and five how Jim and Heather met and how they got married pretty quickly within four months in Hot Springs, Arkansas. They met on Plenty of Fish. And before we launch into Heather's story, Colleen, why don't you tell us a little bit about Plenty of Fish's horrible, horrible history with abusers? Yeah, so I noticed, well, I I don't date or anything because I'm married, but, like, I've heard that Plenty of Fish has this horrible reputation for, like, harassment and people getting dick pics and, like, just women getting harassed. Isn't that every straight dating up. site? And though? so, yeah, that's every dating site. I mean, look, I don't know firsthand, but. I don't know either. That's just what I hear from single people that I know. But I knew it was like bottom of the barrel. It's like there's match, which you pay a monthly fee for, and you take a personality assessment. There's like eHarmony, which is like the Ferrari of dating sites where you take this huge personality assessment. And so Plenty of Fish is free. What I didn't know until I looked it up is that actually abuse, stalking, and harassment are like literally rife on Plenty of Fish, and they know about it. Um, they've like been called to the carpet on it before and decided just to not do anything. They don't do any background checks. They don't prevent sex offenders from joining the site. And it just creates like this cesspool of people who are genuinely out there looking for companionship in like a pool of like, sorry, to use, sorry to use more fish analogies, but like <laughs> the shark tank. Yeah. I really do wonder, like, is there some kind of cause of action here? My thing is, like, we looked into this, like, super briefly. Like, I spent less than five minutes looking into this. Colleen maybe spent ten. And they're all, like, Match, Tender, Plenty of Fish. They're all owned by the same company, Match Group. Mm -hmm. And Match, match Match.com, was sued by this... This woman back in, I can't remember what what year it was, but she heard a lawsuit by being assaulted and abused by someone that she matched with on Match, resulted in them, like, updating and taking all these steps to change their policies and, like, putting all these protections in place, you know, apparently to improve things on Match.com. Why would the parent company not just do the same thing for the rest of the subsidiaries? All they're doing now, I think is, and please reach out if you want to take this case, because I bet we could get you some clients. Mm -hmm. All they're doing now is, like, you have solid evidence that they are aware. Mm -hmm. They know. It's a problem. a rampant problem. It's not just, like, a couple of people this has happened to. It's, like, a lot of people this has happened to, and people reporting it to their, you know, quick chat for help, and them just, their accounts getting suspended. Not the people who are abusing or harassing. The person reporting the harassment's getting suspended. Oh wow! I didn't. I didn't see any of those articles. But yeah. Yeah, and then we've got this one case where a woman, Mary Kay Beckman, was set up with Wade Ridley, who's a murderer. Yeah. Fuck. She sued them. This is the woman, I think. This is the Harvard-educated Match.com woman. Yeah, so for failing to disclose the d- the dangers of online dating. Like, they didn't have a warning. Hmm. So that is that feels the weak. policy? That feels like that's a weak, weak fucking take. I think it's negligence. <laughs> <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is that they need to be doing more. These dating sites need to be doing more. 
Because somebody like Jim Lumen, who's been meeting people online since 1998, back when it was still like a little bit taboo, knows how to game this system and has and has abused multiple multiple women that we have spoken to who have met him on Plenty of Fish. It seems like it's not that hard to institute some type of basic background check. Like, get your profile approved. You know, you apply for a profile and then you get it approved if you don't have a criminal background. That's pro- I guarantee you the answer is capitalism. I'm sure it is. Like, it's more expensive to pay for background checks, but it's also more expensive to get your ass suit off. <laughs> if you want plaintiffs and this sounds like your bag, I bet we can hook you up. We don't. We will get you there. We will get you there. Plenty of fish. We got our sights set on you. Do We're better. for you. Anybody wants to tweet knock, at knock knocking on your door? Tweet at the CEO of Plenty of Fish listeners, who's a woman, right? Who is a woman? And Girlfriend let her know that she's perpetuating violence against women. We do not stand a woman who upholds the status quo. You got to do better, girl. So Heather and Jim met on Plenty of Fish, and they moved from dating to marriage within a few months. And as we noted, that Heather had just gotten out of a twenty-year relationship, and she was in a period of great upheaval in her life but we'll let her tell you exactly what happened between her and jim so even like he would go to oklahoma for a week and then he'd be in iowa for a week and back and forth back and forth well i'm a very sexual human being i always have been it's nothing new so like when he was gone i still had needs i didn't need them satisfied by other people but i wasn't even allowed to take care of things myself And I was made to feel like there's cameras in the apartment. Like, don't let me catch you doing that. I'll kick your ass. And he'd show me like pens that have cameras in them. So I never knew. Like, I'm like, I can't do anything because I don't know when he's watching me. I mean, it was that extreme. Like, you can't. The douching was all the time, which, of course, threw my vaginal flora off, which was terrible. Um, Like I said, the grooming... I'm very particular and I like things a certain way. He wanted to do it, but he'd never do it. So it was just weird. He's just, some of the things he was into was so bizarre. What's the weirdest thing? Um, Two different things. Number one was wine enemas. I can't drink white wine to this day. I can't stand the smell of it. The he super anal fetishes um putting um milk in my rectum with a funnel and then having anal sex with me so he could watch it come out around his penis this is where it gets kind of fuzzy for me because i think we got married on a tuesday i know i got my first ass kicking on a sunday so saturday okay so when we came back my oldest daughter had told me that my youngest daughter had tried cocaine, which I'm, I'm pretty tight with my kids. And so I talked to her and we worked through this and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to drug test you whenever I want. That's condition of this. And he wanted me to do that right away. He wanted me to take her phone away. He wanted all these things. Well, that's not how we parent our kids. It's just not, that's not how we did it. He flipped shit, ended up 
calling her dad. Her dad came on Sunday to pick her up and move her back with him. And I called Jim that morning. I said, hey, my ex is on the way. I'm scared. Um, he's like, okay, I'll be right there. He ended up coming just after Brian had left. And after my daughter is taken from my home to go live with her dad, who's been my whole life, her entire life, I got my ass kicked. He told me to strip down, gave me a stool, bent me over the bed, and whipped me repeatedly with a belt. And then finished and went out in the kitchen and made supper. It escalated to a dowel rod. To this day, I hate fucking dowel rods. Um, and that was pun that was all punishment. But what he liked to do, he used to make me watch videos where, like, the woman would come in and perfect body, no bruises, no nothing. And she would get hit after hit after hit with dowel rods until she bruised in front of your eyes. That's what he would do to me. From the back of my neck, if I would bend my legs up because he would hit my back, he'd smack the back bottom of my feet. That's where I had bruises my entire time I was married to him. And what he'll tell me is that, well, that's so that other man won't touch you. Yeah, so there's this line between consensual, you know, you guys having a playful, sexual, consensual relationship that he just kind of blazes past once you guys are married, right? Oh, yeah, terribly. And he knew I hated it. There was one night he made me hold his beer while he beat me with it. Um, He used to do toothpicks underneath the fingernails. Um, battery clamps on the nipples. Like, nothing fun. He would hold me down and ram his dick down my throat until I threw up and then make me clean it up. There was, like, in the beginning, hot wax. And then you, you know, kind of peel it off with a sharp knife. Well, then it became hot wax or something even hotter. And then It'd be a cut along the rib line or it, everything just escalated. It started so innocent and so playfully fun and different for me. And then it just went right past that. The day that I got beat up in, in October, my ex was there. He ended up pushing me up against a wall, kind of got chest bumped me. Um, I took a pretty significant beating from Jim. Uh, that following week, I had to go to the mall on my way home, which he questioned me about because I had to get extra makeup because I had bruises on my face. And I was a consultant, so I had to not have bruises on my face. Um, he told me that I needed to file a restraining order against my ex-husband and photographed all of the bruises about my arm and my face and told me that I will go file charges and present those pictures so that they charge him with, or not charge him, but I get a restraining order against him. Um, I didn't make it to the courthouse in time the first day because I had to go to Des Moines. Um, got my ass beat for that. Uh, it was important and how could I not do it? So needless to say that I was granted a restraining order for that. So ultimately, but, that's not still in place, though. 
No, no, it's done. Ultimately, Jim uses the violence he perpetrated upon you as a basis for you to obtain a restraining order against your ex, and he directs you to go and do that. Mm -hmm. And I was beaten up because I missed the first filing day. So he had he had this thing about me getting a tattoo. And then before I got married, or before we got married, he decided that it would be super sexy if I would get a brand with his initials. Like a, a steak brand. You know what you'd normally do on a steak? Um... So he took it upon himself. He ordered it off the internet and it, he had it when I came down to Oklahoma. And he would light it up with a lighter. And the first one was an accident on the side of my arm. Um, he lit it up and then he touched me with it and it was enough to make it happen. And then he thought that was so cool. Like that was one of our wedding things. Um, he did one on the back of my neck on that Boston Pool Road. He simply reached across the car, grabbed a hold of me which I believe, I think that was around that November assault in Tulsa and just burnt the back of my head with it. Um, the one on my shoulder, I can't remember what that one was for. The one on my butt was punishment when I had left and went to my parents' house and came back. But yeah, the neck, the arm, and the, and the, the neck, the shoulder, and the butt were all punishment for something that I had done that he didn't like. He made it very clear to me how he would take care of things. You know, like leaving you certain places or putting you in ponds or there was more. God. The hiding. Like, I'm terrified of the dark. I've said that. So he used to threaten to tie me to a tree and just leave me there until the animals would eat me or putting me out in some remote area. Um, we looked at purchasing two different houses, and when we would look at the houses, he would point out, like, oh, I could put you in this pond. And so, ultimately, you decide to get a firearm to protect yourself. Yeah. The inkity officer, he, I had two huge patio doors in my apartment, and he told me that I should do extra security, like putting something on the base so that he can't open the door. But he goes, you know, bottom line, if he wants you, he's going to get you. You have a gas grill here with a propane tank. If he wants you, he'll have you before I can get back to you. That officer also kind of discouraged you from filing a protective order. Is that right? Well, yeah, he told me it's just a piece of paper. He simply told me that it is just a piece of paper and there's nothing if he wants you. Like, just like I said, where if, if he wants you, he's going to get you. It doesn't matter what you do. So then that put that put fear in my head because I'm like, wait a minute, this is law enforcement. Like, you're supposed to be here to protect me whenever I need you. And now he's telling me he can't. I didn't tell this man no for anything. He got my ass beat. Or or will he go, will he hurt Lincoln? Will he hurt the dog? He he traumatized that dog one day so bad that dog shit on my bedroom floor because he was terrified. That was one occurrence. Because Lincoln wanted to look at us while we were eating supper. The first time we ever had supper as a family in my apartment with his kids. The dog sat by the table and watched. And he led that dog around the house and was just a complete asshole to him. That dog had never been hurt a day in its life. 
there's a couple things about this story that are like so harrowing. I mean, just like I wake up in a cold sweat sometimes thinking about it. Partially, it's the leaving her in a field that really bothers me because she she says like I am afraid of the dark. And it's just kind of sweet. Like, I'm afraid of the dark. And he knew that. And he would just threaten to leave me out in the darkened field and watch animals eat my body. Like, just turns my stomach. There's a lot of literature that shows that abusers often turn on the family animal. And if they're abusing the people in the home, they're also abusing the animals in the home. And a lot of the reason why victims don't leave is because they're concerned for the animal. If they leave the animal, they're afraid they'll kill the animal. (sighs) So there is like this tie between domestic abuse and animal abuse that I don't think is explored as often as like maybe we should. Marcy is Jim's most recent ex-wife, and they met in 2019 because part of Jim's legal consulting business that we talked about in episode three works with chiropractors. And even though he was in Iowa, he still had chiropractors and legal cases that he was consulting on in Oklahoma. So one of the chiropractors he worked with, Marcy actually worked in his office And she was one of the people that worked, you know, worked the phones and things like that. And so when Jim was calling all the time to work on cases, she would be the person that answered the phone. And they just kind of started a relationship that way. And the interesting thing about how they met is that he let her think he was one of the attorneys. I think his method is more letting everybody assume. Right. Acting like an attorney and letting everybody assume. And she thought for sure that he was one until her boss... The day she was driving away from Oklahoma to go visit him for the first time in Iowa, her boss says, you know, he's not an attorney, right? And it was like a little bit too late by that point. And she kind of thought it was strange, but she was still like into it and excited to go and meet him. So she didn't really push back on that very much. Marcy is from Yukon and Yukon is a town in Oklahoma And their relationship was mostly long distance during that first part. While they were getting to know each other, it was a lot of calling, a lot of texting, a lot of driving to Iowa to go and see him. So as you heard in episode five, at this point in time, Jim was actually on the sex offender registry in Iowa. And that is part of the reason why Marcy was constantly having to drive up there to meet him. He couldn't come see her. So it wasn't very long after Marcy and Jim 
were together and she moves up there on a, a Christmas, she kind of just decides impromptu not to come back to Oklahoma, even though her family and her whole support system are here. And then she starts getting mail at their house and Jim doesn't like that her ex-husband's name is on her mail. And that's essentially how he proposed to her is we're getting married now because I don't like to see your ex-husband's name. Yeah. And so they, they start dating in that September and by the following July, they're married. That's right. We know these relationships move really fast. There's not a lot of time to question things. There's not a lot of time to talk to your family and see, you know, if you, if they want to meet him, if they want to have a, like, you know, a sit down with him. It's just kind of like, let's go, hurry, don't ask anybody about it. By the time Jim begins dating Marcy, a lot has happened in his world as far as like, he's getting worse at avoiding accountability in some ways. And Iowa, I mean, Iowa really kind of steps up to try to hold him accountable. You still see the same patterns of pleading out for way less time than is warranted based on the facts. But like comparatively, if you look at the deals that he got in Oklahoma and the court time that he got in Oklahoma versus the like accountability and the amount of time that he got in Iowa, you can definitely see a difference in the court systems. I mean, it's like they take it very seriously. They're taking him to court on multiple different cases for multiple different offenses. And he's getting time. Some of them he is getting suspended sentences. Like he was getting here, but it's like there are more charges being brought. There's more work being put in generally. Yeah, you can just see that there's an effort being made. Yeah. Like you threatening a violent act. I just am like, that is a charge here. And you know who gets charged with that shit? No one. The homeless guy who is incompetent and he's shouting at the at the liquor store clerk that he's going to shoot him because X, Y, and Z. That's who gets charged with threatening a violent act in Oklahoma. We're not going to do that for Jim. Yeah. Or when he threatens people's kids, he's going to kill people's kids if they talk. Or like, no, none of that. We're not seeing any of that. So Iowa is at least trying. Some, I mean, some props to Iowa. And Shout I outs. like. And the reason I bring that up is that like he's sort of just he's just like getting worse at this, or he's getting sloppier at this. And I mean, the fact is, it's been twenty five years. What the fuck? Right. Like, we're literally saying he's getting worse at this. No, it's like we can't ignore it anymore. He has yeah. 25 years worth of charges and right. filings and POs. And it's like, there's, it's just impossible to ignore at this point. At least for Iowa. Uh, for Iowa. Uh, <laughs> but like, and I, but I say that to also say that like, Marcy gets fucking gaslighted. From the beginning. From the beginning. And it's gonna get, it gets worse as, as the relationship goes on and it culminates in the final most ultimate gaslighting that we're going to have to discuss a little bit. So without further ado, here's Marcy's account of what happened to her during her darkest days with Jim. We had gone to, while I was driving there, we had gone to Walmart for supplies for the weekend, just drinks and food and things like that. Um, and we had got some rope and tied it up to the bed. And when I got there, I came through the door and he pushed me up against the wall and started kissing me. And next thing I know, I'm tied up and he's basically raping me. I remember screaming, asking, I mean, begging him to stop, and he would not stop. Did you guys discuss, like, after it was over, did you discuss it at all? Um, yeah. I told him that the reason I had asked him to stop was because I couldn't breathe and it scared me. 
and he just kind of basically, no, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize. I thought you were just playing the part. Had he discussed a, like a rape fantasy with you? Oh, he had discussed um, fantasies of tying me up to a tree naked and leaving me and me being his sex slave while being tied up to a tree. I actually have a picture where I have marks from head to toe with a bow rod all the way down my body. I have been beat with his belt multiple times. Wow. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Very, very bad. And that was that was part of his sexual pleasure. That was for him. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was good when I first moved up. And then there was something that we had gotten a fight about. And I left in my car. And I told him I was going to go back to Oklahoma. We were on the phone with each other and I was driving around. And he said that if I left him or if I ever exposed him um, or what he is, that he would kill me, my two sons, and my mother. He would have us killed. And then proceeded to talk me into coming back home. Totally changed up, became this nice, sweet man. So I ended up going back to the house, and as soon as I walked in the door, he grabbed me around the throat and shoved me up against the wall and strangled me until I passed out. And when I came to, I remember, like I could see in my head, I, I was rocking my youngest son. And when I woke up, I was actually rocking back and forth on the floor. And I asked him, I said, what happened? And he said, get your ass up and get in the bedroom now. And went in there and proceeded to basically rape me again. So the night before we got married, he tackled me in a ditch and beat the crap out of me. If you look in our wedding pictures, the white of my eye is pure blood. You I have a bruise on my chin and a bruise on my chest. Tell me about that. So, like, let's back up. Let's actually, like, talk about when did he start talking about marriage with you? Like, when did when did he bring that stuff up? Um, Shortly after I moved up there, because I was getting mail, and it was in my previous husband's last name, because that was my name. And he had a problem with that. And he was like, I can't do it anymore. I'm tired of seeing Mel with this name. You need to have my last name. So we're getting married. What did you think? How can I say no? What's going to happen to me if I say no? And so, well, tell me, will you walk me through the night before you had mentioned that you guys, he beat you and it was uh, there was a bad night before. Can you walk me through what happened? I had a bottle in my hand, um, and I went to throw it out the window, and the window was up a little bit, and so the bottle hit the window, and I got backhanded, so I stopped the truck because he hit me in the eye, 
I stopped the truck and I got out. And I think I had just like started walking towards the bar ditch. And next thing I know, he's gotten tackled in the ditch. And he's telling me to get back in the truck after punching me and beating on me. Were you, so you were driving? Yes. Were you guys just like, because I know yes, that like, he, yeah, go ahead. He was drinking. He was drinking. So, of course, I was driving because he already had so many DUIs. So anytime he wanted to drink, I was always the one that had to drive him around. for. He would make me drive him around all night long while he drank. And then I would have to get up the next morning and work and be there to answer the phones for work while he slept. So the night of the wedding, we're at this hotel room, and I get a text from my son. And he said, I just wanted to let you know I'm in the hospital. I had a motorcycle accident, and I shattered my pelvis. So they're going to do an emergency surgery. So, of course, I'm getting texts from him all night with updates of what's going on. So I got in trouble with Jim saying that I ruined the honeymoon because I was more worried about my son, which of course I was. Sure. That's, that's my baby, you know? Yeah. So the next weekend I left and I came to Oklahoma for a week to be with my son. I mean, there was several times where he would backhand me or, there was a time that I was in the bathroom using the bathroom and he came in and strangled me. Um, and then, and I don't even know what that was about. I still don't know what that one was about. It was just bizarre. Like he wasn't himself. Strangled me and knocked my head into the wall. Um, and then told me, that if I got out of the bathtub, he would kill me. So I laid in the bathtub of cold water for two hours until I finally texted him and I said, can I get out? And he said, I don't care what you do. Shortly after that, he comes in there and he's like, hey, do you want something to eat? Like nothing ever happened. There was another time that I was sitting on the couch and he came over and again strangled me. And when he did, my legs went up towards the arm of the couch. And I accidentally kicked the lamp over. And so, you know, he, he would always gouge, try to gouge my eye out with his thumb. So when he got done with that, I was on the sitting on the floor at that time. And he took the lampshade and hit me over the head with it and busted my head open. And I'm just pouring blood. So he's like, get in the bathtub, strip down. So I'm sitting in the bathtub, blood pouring down, and apparently he took pictures of me and sent them to Amber of me naked pouring blood from my head in the bathtub because Amber told me that. That night was the first time that he cried. He sat there and bawled. He tried to stitch my head up by himself with no anesthesia because I wasn't allowed to go to the hospital because then he would be found out that he had beat me. 
So we had decided that we were going to go out because we've been married for six months. So it was a, a sort of anniversary celebration, I guess. And at that point, I was nine years sober and decided to drink that night. So we went out back roading and we went to the next town over to the liquor store and he bought a, a, a huge bottle of some kind of banana something or other. So we were both drinking beer and drinking the banana stuff. And he said that he wanted to, he asked me if I wanted to go to the bar shoot some pool or something. And I was like, yeah, we've never been to a bar together. Let's go. So we went to the bar. And I remember it was 10 something at night. I remember going to the bathroom and I texted him from my watch. And I told him that I was trashed. Um, he went out to the truck and got the banana stuff and took it out back behind the bar like in the smoking area so every time we'd go outside to smoke we would drink more of it um, but there was another couple I don't know. There were some more people that came over and joined up with us. And so me and a girl and then two guys, we were playing pool and Jim went off to shoot darts with some other girl. And I'm still trying to, I mean, parts of it, I don't remember. And parts of it, I think, because I talked to Jim. He had called me when I was in the hospital, and I think he put part of it in my head of what happened. Hmm. uh, I mean some of it's still very blurry and I'm still trying to make sense of it but I guess he had come over and told me that the girl he was playing darts with was making him uncomfortable because she was telling him where she lived and according to him hitting on him so we were playing doubles in pool and it was me and that girl against Jim 
and somebody else at this point. And the girl shot, and then the other guy shot, and then I shot, and I ran the table. And I went up, and I was dancing in front of Jim, and I guess it embarrassed him because I had just run the table. And I was in front of him dancing, like, I guess he took that offensively. And so he was, like, getting a truck. And I went to the bathroom, and I guess he left. Hmm. Um, like I said, parts of it I still don't remember. I remember walking down the road and realizing that my ring was gone. And then I remember walking back into the bar and it was in the bathroom. I guess I had taken it off when I was washing my hands. I remember getting to the house and I was just going to go sit in my car, you know, to stay away from him, basically. Like I had done many times before where I'd go sleep in a park or a Walmart parking lot. I was just going to sit in my car because I knew he was mad sit in my car, sleep in my car if I had to, and let him be. So I got out of the bartender's truck, and I remember walking to the car, not realizing that Jim was sitting in his truck right next to my car. And I remember him saying, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. And then everything was black. Do you remember when police or the ambulance arrived on the scene? I do. I remember, well, so I don't remember going in the house, um, but I remember I laid down in the bedroom floor and he was sitting on the couch and he yelled at me because I was bleeding on the carpet. Not that I was bleeding, it's that I was bleeding on his carpet. So I crawled to the office and I guess I passed out again I thought at that point that he had kicked me in the ribs he says he didn't I don't know but for some reason being kicked in the ribs stands out to me Mm -hmm. I don't know if that actually happened or not but he came over there he said that I was gurgling on my blood and then I had quit bleeding, so he came over there and, like, shook me and brought me to. And I remember getting up and going in the bathroom to pee. And when I saw myself in the mirror, it scared the crap out of me. Mm. Because I was just covered in blood. So I remember locking the door, which I was never allowed to shut the door when I was going to the bathroom. And definitely I was not allowed to lock the door. So I remember quietly locking the door and calling 911 for my watch because I wanted an ambulance. I wasn't calling for police. I wasn't calling for help. I mean, for for the police, I was calling for help for an ambulance. Mm -hmm. So they answered, and I just said, help, help, because I knew I needed an ambulance. I had so much blood all over me. Um, And then I remember going out of the bathroom and I ran out the back door and again, the snow was knee deep. So it wasn't going very fast. 
and he ran after me and tackled me in the snow. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to die right now. And I looked up and saw the police lights coming at me. And I knew I was safe. Look, what you're seeing with Marcy is like, what I've been afraid of since we started recording the season is this is extreme escalation. Yeah. Yeah. And this like, again, the crying while sewing her head shut with no, because she can't go to the hospital. You won't allow her to go to the hospital. You're not giving any, you're not numbing the area. I mean, like, I just can't imagine what that was like for Marcy. She's sitting there, like, having to feel like she needs to console him while her head's getting sewn up. Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what's going on. He's crying and telling her he won't ever do it again. He's so sorry. Suddenly, for the first time in that relationship, he's suddenly sorry. And her head is split open. And she's what's she supposed to be saying? I forgive you? Like all she, all that woman can do is the next, the only decision, and you can see how this plays out. The only decision that Marcy can make in that moment is the decision that allows for survival. There is no other choice. Whatever the decision is, it's the decision to survive. And like, that's all she can do. Yeah. That's all she can do. Yeah. And I think I'm seeing some parallels in like what people will be thinking or saying about Marcy's story, like especially when they hear about the fact that the second time to visit him, she goes to Osceola and essentially gets raped the first night after she arrives, like right then. And it's like you lived five states away, nine hour drive. Why are you getting raped, driving back home and still involving yourself with this person? It's a very like, why did April go to Terry's house that night question? And again, it's like. She brought it up to him. She said, that hurt. I didn't like it. I kept telling you to stop. And he said, I thought you were just playing a part. And it, like, minimized her experience to the point where she's like, well, I guess. Yeah. And I think also they had, I mean, they were having, look, like in any long-distance relationship, anybody who's been in a long-distance relationship will sext their partner. I don't know how else you stay connected if you don't. Sure. And so it's like they're engaging. She describes it, you know, that like they're engaging in these these sexed, scenarios that are sort of escalating and she sort of doesn't really know how to react to it. And, you know, she and I had a conversation about how oftentimes women, I I think have been in a sexual scenario with a man where it's like, I guess I'm consenting because I don't actually know how to get out of this. And if I say no now, what happens? What's going to happen if I push you away from me? So I'm consenting. And you know what I mean? And and you can rationalize those things in your mind. Women do it every day. Mm -hmm. And this line between that we just do not discuss enough as a society, this idea of like personal agency and consent is so is so ever present in these kinds of stories because it's like okay, I did consent to texting with you about slave fantasies. I did consent to to texting with you about rape fantasies or whatever, does that inherently mean I consented to be tied up to the bed and raped? It shouldn't. No, it it doesn't. The answer is that it doesn't. But we haven't as a society gotten to that place. Or the fact that like, or like what Heather says, which is, you know, I liked it when he was pouring hot wax on me and I liked it when he was like, you know, doing some subtle 
Right. Some some slapping. Yeah, like the pat the or paddle spanking. Some spanking. She call it swats. Swats. Yeah. The swats and like there's a whole subculture about you know tying people up and using. But there's also a whole subculture of people that know you need to use a safe word. And it's like at some point you just like are like not cool with it anymore. Right. But you also have to be so in touch with yourself and your and feel so safe with your partner and your ability to say like it's over. It crossed the line and I'm done. And to know that they're going to be cool with it. And like this dude isn't going to be cool with it. We are not having enough conversations about consent. And I don't know, you know, like, I guess I, so I would say to the people who are raising those types of questions, it's like, I think that a lot of women can rationalize what is essentially a non-consensual sex act being perpetrated upon them to, well, I, I didn't say no. It's the victim blaming. It is. It is. It's classic victim blaming. It's like, I set this up. I packed the laundry. I did the, the, I, I sent those messages. I participated. And so I have to be okay with whatever happens next. And if you don't process, I know I feel like a fucking broken record on this, but I, and, but like if you don't process your trauma at all and you're not a healed person and you get into an attachment with somebody who likes these types of scenarios, it is going to be very difficult for you to say no and walk away because you're afraid that person's going to abandon you. You're afraid that person's not going to want to be with you. Yeah. And you're going to be, you're a people pleaser. Right. It happens. And I think that Jim, what's what we know about abusers, especially abusers like Jim, are that they can pick that person out of a fucking crowd. Yeah, like he could see it at a fucking like live aid concert. That and woman like, has trauma and it's unresolved. And I can exploit that. <laughs> I feel like he can tell from the initial messages with you. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, like text in text. Sorry, so this is the other thing that I think Mar- that Marcy really shined a light, light on is that is this issue of he's vulnerable first. He will tell you a story that makes it seem like this man is willing to bear his soul to me. Why would I hold back? Heather talks about that too. It's like this idea of like, he's this big grumpy man who has to be mad at everybody in court and settling stuff all the time. Like his gruff exterior. And he's just some, a good man in search of a good woman. And he's had sad things happen to him too. And like, and he's the first one to go there. Yeah. To let down the walls and like, Oh, you're seeing something that no one else sees. And, and it invites all of these women to share their own trauma. Like, imagine, I mean, imagine, I, I, like, look, I have a wonderful relationship with my wife, and, like, we share a lot of things, I mean, most things with each other, and all of our vulnerabilities, and it is a wonderful connection, and I love it, and I love her. And to be in that spot, thinking, this is the guy that I'm going to share that connection with, only to later find out he's going to manipulate, gaslight, and abuse you. Using that to using exploit that. you. Using what you share in those vulnerable moments. I that mean, what do you think is getting talked about on these fucking nine-hour booze cruises, Leslie? Like, we're not just, like, talking about Jason Isbell lyrics. Like, we're talking about deep shit. Yeah. That's why he does that. Yeah. Yes. You said that in an earlier episode, and I think you're exactly right. It's like this, it's like forced intimacy. Forced, fast intimacy. And it's not just for the purpose of feeling close with somebody. It's for the purposes of learning about you so he can figure out how to make you stay, how to put you into situations you can't get out of and you won't say no to. Right. It's literally methodical. Yes. 
So I think many of our listeners are probably reeling right now. I'm a little worked up myself. Right. I have a hard time listening to these stories, even after, especially you calling, you've had to mind them over and over again. And, you know, I've, I've listened to them multiple times as well. And it's just hard. And it doesn't get any easier. No. And it's just, I think we talked about this at the top of this episode that like we focus as a society and as, as people, our brains are so interested in the very odd and the very 1% of cases that are just, just strange enough to make us think, I want to learn more about that, or I want to look into that, or I want to solve that. And we don't pay any attention at all to the violence that's happening right under our noses every day, every 20, 20 people every minute. And maybe it's because it's too painful to look at that. Because it's too close to home. We've all had those kinds of things happen, or we know people that have, or the people we love have, and it's just too painful. Yeah. But like we have to start telling these stories and we have to start looking at this because it's just <sighs> Well, I mean, like to okay, so the reason I think that we're saying here that violence against women and domestic violence is so insidious, it's because of that secrecy, that manipulation, that unwillingness to to shed light, right? Because of shame, fear, all of the things. And so the person and in this scenario and in many other scenarios like this the abuser, the person who's hurting you, is telling you it's just not that bad. You're overreacting. I didn't mean that. It's not going to happen again. I mean, all of that is part of why these things take so long to come out, right? Yeah, and hearing the escalation of the violence from those early accounts you heard from Ember in episode one, and those were harrowing too, Leslie. Like, I'm not downplaying what happened to Ember, but to hear how it's gone from that to the extreme levels of sexual and physical violence that Jim committed against Heather in 2016 and then again on Marcy in 2020, it leaves me feeling terrified, honestly, that the insufficient interventions from so many agencies has allowed him to continue to become more violent and more severe. And it also makes me wonder how many victims there truly are and how much we still have to uncover about the depths of Jim's violence. Next week on Panic Button, we'll discuss what happens when these survivors try to exert independence in those relationships, and what happens to them when they decide enough is enough. Jem is particularly adept at two forms of abuse that aren't talked about much, separation abuse and legal abuse. Because of his connections with lawyers and to the legal field, Jem is smart enough about the court system to use it to his advantage. He does that in more ways than one. You can find links to pictures, documents, and all our sources in the show notes of this episode. These cases serve as a reminder of the devastating consequences of domestic violence and the importance of seeking help if you or someone you know is a victim. If you are in immediate danger, please call 911 or your local emergency number. For confidential support and resources, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Thank you for listening to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire. 
and for joining us in shedding light on the importance of ending domestic violence for good. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. Panic Button is a production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studios in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our theme music is by Guillaume. Additional editing is provided by The Wave Podcasting. Our music supervisor is Rusty Rowe. Special thanks to our interns, Kat and Allison. To learn more about Oklahoma Appleseed or donate to keep our mission of fighting for the rights and opportunities of every Oklahoman a reality, go to okappleseed.org.